we ask you to bless this time as we look at your word and be with us, guide and lead us as we look at this wonderful chapter on the millennial kingdom and show us what you would want us to see from all of this. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Zechariah chapter 13. Continuing on the in millennial kingdom as we've been in the, for the last couple chapters. Starting at verse 1. In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirits to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall yet prophesy, then his father and mother shall, that begat him shall say unto him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and his mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed, every one of his visions when he hath prophesied. Neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. But he shall say, I am no prophet, I am a husbandman. For man taught me to keep a cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in thine hands? And he shall answer, These with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. All right. So we're going to start with this. We're continuing on with this whole picture of the Messiah and the Millennial Kingdom. And we look at this and it says, In that day there shall be a fountain or a source of life, literally, in this particular statement. A source of life uh, that will be open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. In other words, forgiveness of sin and life. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And remember, in this previous chapter, we looked that they finally recognized that the Messiah had come to rescue them. And they're going to rescue the, realize that life comes from this individual who is the Messiah. And we have that for us as Gentiles. We see it now, for the most part, those of us who have accepted it. But many do not. Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. Uh, we look at this and he says, in that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I? Because they, they were working on law and legalism and rules and not on grace. And this is the beauty of this. It says that God will provide. <laughs> All right. In that day shall be a fountain opened up. That God does the work. And this is the great news for us. God does everything. And we need to really grab hold of that, even for us as Christians. Many people get saved knowing that it's by grace, they don't deserve it, it's all by Jesus Christ, but then they start living like somehow I've got to prove to God that I deserve it. Or I don't know if they're trying to prove to them that God, true to God that they deserve the salvation, or prove to them that they're worthy of it, or what they're trying to prove, but God says he is everything. And it's a faith rest that he's expecting from us. He just wants us to rest in him and quit striving. And I've told many people who say, well, I'm trying to be a good Christian. And my answer to them, quit trying. Let God come in and crucify you. Let God do the work because we don't deserve it anyway. So if I'm striving and I'm working hard at being a good Christian and doing all the right things, then I'm not being crucified. 
But when I let God crucify my flesh, then I change, and he's the one that does the work in, in me. Over my years, I have discovered that most everything that has changed in my life are just because I surrender it to God. And before, I was fighting and struggling and trying to make things happen, and when it's the work of God, it just stops. Turn it over to him, he crucifies that area, and it just becomes a no issue. And hopefully you've all experienced that, where you've just given up something and it's, you know, it's no longer an issue with you. It's no longer a problem because God crucified it. And this is it. He's saying, I am the fountain of life. I am that fountain that brings life and, you know, for sin and for uncleanness. All right? So if we just learn to trust God, we rest in him, we hide in him, we let him crucify our flesh for Galatians 2.20, for I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live by faith, I live according to the Son of God. You know, I let him do the crucifixion. I let him get rid of my flesh. And then I get to live in victory. And I love God's plan for us. He does all the work for us, and we get the credit. You know, which does, doesn't seem like he made a fair deal as far as my perspective from him, but it really is what humans want. Just give me everything for nothing and I'll be happy. And yet that's exactly what he does. He died for us when we didn't deserve it. He comes in and he clothes us with his righteousness. He fills us with his spirit. He crucifies our flesh and he makes us perfect. Now, what, a, what, a, what, a, what a plan he has for us. And yet we sit there and try to struggle saying, well, I'm not good enough. And we compare ourselves to others and others against us and others against each other and, and try to figure out who, 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 who's better and who's worse and where do I stand amongst them? And God's saying, well, you're all clothed in Jesus Christ. You're all the same. And I've said this many times. If we could start seeing ourselves first off the way God sees us, but then see others the way God sees them, what a difference the church would be, a different place the church would be. What a difference the body of Christ would be if we started all understanding the way that God sees us is totally different than any way we see each other. He says we're perfect, and he sees us as perfect because he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ, and when he looks at us, he doesn't see us. He sees the righteousness of Christ and says, these are my perfect children. And we're beating ourselves up because we're not perfect, and we're beating each other up because others aren't perfect. And because we don't see ourselves as perfect, we're really beating up on others because we've got to look good compared in comparison. You know, and this is the problem that we have, is that we're going, God has redeemed me. He has made me perfect in his eyes. And because he has declared me perfect, I am perfect. Yeah, and we need to be able to understand it's all what Jesus has done. The Jews at the time of the millennial kingdom are finally going to recognize as a nation the few that are left that the Messiah has come. After having thought that the Antichrist was the Messiah, now Jesus comes and we talked about in the previous chapter, they see him and they say, all right, this is the one. And now they're going to be ruled what few are left and he's going to come in and say, I am the life. I am the one that brings life. I'm the one that brings forgiveness for your sin and your uncleanness. And they're going to recognize what Christians now know <laughs> and completed Jews and all that know, but they're going to recognize that he is life. He is my power. And that doesn't mean we don't do anything. You know, we don't want to ever get this wrong, you know, but it is all him. 
He is the one that gives us victory. That doesn't mean I go out and try to purposely sin. Because if I'm being crucified, I'm not going to want to sin. And this is the thing where we have to remember when God says that, that if we ask anything in his name, we will get it. You know, a lot of people think, well, that just means I've got to tag on the name of Jesus at the end of my prayers and I'm going to be okay. No, because if I'm asking anything in his name, which is after his reputation, then what am I asking for? For his kingdom to be built. For his kingdom to be, my whole desire should be for him to be glorified. For his kingdom to be built. And if I'm praying according to his name and his desires, I get to see him working. You know, and it's not just all about what do I get. <laughs> Too many times when we pray, it's God give me. And if we're really, really spiritual, it's God gives somebody else a few things once in a while too. You know, but what we're really needing to be praying is, God, let your kingdom be built. Whatever that means, and we have to be ready for whatever that means. During the many times in the first century, it meant death of martyrdom for his kingdom to be built. And we need to be ready to say, God, I'm ready for you to be exalted. You, know, you to be lifted up. You to be the one that is drawing people. And sometimes that means we get hurt so that he can be exalted. So that we can be just like Jesus, just like Daniel, just like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, just like Stephen. Facing tribulation, facing death, and doing saying, we're going to trust God anyway. We're going to trust God. Uh, they, we may get through it, or we may die. But either way, Christ is list, list, lifted up and he brings life into the situation. And it's not us doing it. And, you know, all the, you know, the four examples I gave and the hundreds of others in the Bible, these guys were not always really strong. They didn't feel confident. But when it was time to face the trial, God gave them the grace to stand for him. And this is the way it'll be for us. If we're willing to lean on him he will give us the grace to go through whatever it is he's asking us to go through because he gave me the honor to die for him. You know, we need to have that kind of attitude of when we go through hard times, it is the, he felt that we were worthy of the test. And that's what the disciples said over and over. Thank God I was found worthy of suffering for Christ. Paul said it on several occasions. You know, Thank God I've been found worthy. It's real easy to serve God when nothing's going wrong. Or at least appear to serve God when nothing's going wrong. It's a lot harder to serve God when people are against you and things are tr hard and things are, are looking like trouble. We want to keep this in mind. It's all Him. Verse 2 says, And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall no more be remembered, and I also will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. When Jesus comes during the millennial kingdom, it is going to be as close to paradise as a fallen world can get. All right? The idols will be completely removed. No idols in high or low places. He's going to remove all the idols from the entire world. He is going to send Satan the demons and everybody that's taken the mark of the beast will be placed into hell for a thousand years to come back out at the end of the thousand years to stand at the judgment seat, the, the white throne judgment seat. But for a thousand years, there is no 
demons or enemies to entice man. Now, that does not mean that man is going to be perfect during that time because we've talked about that. We do not need Satan and the demons to sin. We have, according to John, the lust of the flesh, the, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Inside our very being and the core of our being is the desire to sin. These prophets in this are not God's prophets, but they're false prophets. All right. Uh, so God says, I'm going, to re- I'm going to cut off the names of the idols, and they will not be remembered anymore. So for a thousand-year period, no idol worship. Not even their names being remembered or cared about. No false prophets. You know, all of, no demonic activity. No, no devils trying to help us sin. Well, you'll still have your sin nature. They did not have a sin nature, but you know, here they will be no. They will have sin nature, but it says that in the Revelation that Jesus will rule with an iron rod. So he will not let people sin during this time, even though they will want to sin. This is what this is the time that's going to happen. It's going to be as close to paradise as a fallen people can be during the millennial kingdom. And it says that if somebody dies at 100, he'll be a child. So they're talking about lifespans being renewed back to what they were supposed to be. People will be born during it. People will die, but they will die at a much older, older age than what we currently see and understand. Some will have to die within that thousand years, and some will die. I mean, obviously, it says if a man dies at 100, he'll be considered a child. So that means people are dying during that period of time. Because sin still has its consequences, and thoughts are still sin. All right, so there will be sin, but there won't be the actions of of the sin and, and everything. And God will be right there, you know, to judge any sin that happens very quickly. Um, so we have this pro- process, and it says they will all pass out of the land, and it shall come to pass in verse three that when any shall yet prophesy, then his mother and his father that begat him shall slay, shall say unto them, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother that begat him shall thrust him through with, when he prophesies. Now, this is kind of an interesting because we do believe that this is definitely false prophets. I mean, this is false prophets. But that is what God said of the false prophets. If they prophesy and it doesn't come true, they were to be stoned. All right, pretty, pretty severe punishment for being a false prophet because God says, you're saying things in my name, you're to die if I didn't say them. And here he's saying if there's any man that wants to prophesy during that period of time, then he's gonna, his own parents will be the first ones to kill him. Hard to understand, but it is what it is. If, somebody, if you're worshiping God and people speak in God's name incorrectly, it makes my skin crawl. When I'm listening to a pastor on the radio or somebody on the TV and they say something that is not biblical and not scriptural, and especially if they say, thus saith the Lord or the Lord or the Bible says, and I'm looking and going, what in the world are you talking about? I take it very serious when I teach. I want to know that I teach correctly. I want to know that, it, that it's correct. And because James tells us many of you ought not to be teachers because the judgment is greater for teachers because we influence people's lives. Uh, now, again, I've said this many times, that doesn't release us as listeners and, and students of the responsibility to be, as Paul said to the Bereans, good Bereans, the ones that go in and study the scriptures. 
But we also have to understand as a teacher that a lot of people aren't good Bereans. And one of the things I have found over the years, I've done a lot of Sunday school work, I've been Sunday school director and several. I really think churches shortchange their children in, 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 in Sunday school. They give them new, new people who are enthusiastic about Jesus but don't know a lot and teach kids. I would rather see the enthusiastic new Christian teaching adults because the adults can be good Bereans and go in and study. And if they teach something wrong, the adults are going, ah, oh, no, well, let me, let me help you out. They could be Priscilla and Aquila going to Apollos and saying, uh, let's give you the rest of the story, Apollos. You're, you're a good teacher. You're giving good information. But here is the rest of what you don't know. When we teach kids wrong, it affects them the rest of their life. And I don't know how many of you spent time in Sunday school or church at an early age, but it's really hard to get rid of the wrong stuff you're taught as a kid and say, well, you know, because in a human, we want to tie in what we've learned and we don't want to think that we've learned something bad and we keep trying to tie everything together and there's certain things we just have to throw away. <laughs> and, you know, we see this, when the children of Israel were rescued out of Egypt. They did not have a written Bible at that time. They had stories of the creation. They had stories of the flood. They had stories of God calling Abraham. They had some stories, but by the time they had been in Egypt for, for three generations, they had become very pagan in their thoughts. What's the first thing they do at, you know, at Mount Sinai when Moses goes up on the mountain? Hey, Aaron, we don't know what happened to this, uh, this guy Moses who said he was, he was God's servant. Make a god for us. And what do they do? They make a golden calf, which is one of the major gods of Egypt, behind Ra. You know, so they were infected by all of this. They did not have the word of God. They did not have strong doctrines to, be, to believe on, and yet God chose them. Uh, verse 4, and it shall come to pass in that day that prophets shall be ashamed, every one of his, for his, of his visions, for he has prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive. All right? So in other words, the people who have been speaking with authority, uh, they managed to make it through the, the tribulation period. They didn't take the mark of the beast. <laughs> but now they're going to all of a sudden go, nope, never, wasn't me. I didn't, I didn't say anything. <laughs> I, I, you're not going to find me. Now, that'd be tough to do in our day and age because it's pretty easy to prove if people say things. Uh, but they're going to say in verse 5, you know, hey, I'm just a, I'm just a, a farmer, a husband. I, I take care of herds. <laughs> I, I was never one that spoke these, way, these, these words to people. And you've got to think about this. When people are coming through the tribulation period, they're in the tribulation period because they've denied God. They haven't accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, so they're in the tribulation period. The, the guys who managed to get through the end of the tribulation period with their heads still on their body uh, and without taking the mark of the beast are going to go, nope, wasn't me. I never said anything. Uh, I, 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 didn't, I didn't say things bad. You know, I didn't say these things that were against God. I'm just, I'm just a farmer. I'm just a, I'm just a craftsman. Uh, I'm just a nobody. I, I was never up there... Uh, you know, teaching these things. And then they will say, and this is kind of interesting because this was very much attributed to Jesus in verse 6. And one shall say to him, what are these wounds in your hands? And he shall answer, 
those with which I was wounded in the house of, a, of my friends. You know, and why we go from the false prophets all of a sudden to Jesus, I don't know. Because this isn't the false prophets that have been wounded necessarily, at least in my opinion, because this is very clearly talking about Jesus, that his hands have been, have been wounded. You know, the amazing thing that we have is Jesus bears the marks of the cross through the millennial kingdom and right now in heaven because he's the lamb slain before the foundation of the world he, he, even when John saw him he saw the lamb slain in heaven now I don't know if Jesus is going to wear these marks for the rest of eternity or not it seems to by the way we're, we're looking at it I don't know but for, for the millennial kingdom he will wear the marks about the price of our salvation and I think, I think this will be very hard on one side. You know, uh, I've thought about this many times and I just don't know. You know, if I looked at Jesus and saw the, nails in his, the nail prints in his hands and the scars on his body for all of eternity, you know, knowing that I'm here because he took, those, took some punishment, it'll be hard and I don't know. I don't know if he'll hold him forever. I don't, from our human point of view, I can't see that happening because it would bring sorrow to know how much it cost. But I think we as Christians really lose sight of the cost of our salvation. There are so many Christians that don't see the cost. It, God paid for our debt. He took the entire anger of the Father for all of sin upon himself. Yeah, we, we use the word in the scriptures, he was the propitiation of, for us. And if we really understand propitiation, it's a very powerful word, but that he took all the anger of God that was due us upon himself. God has no anger toward mankind because the sin has been paid for. Now, he does have anger when people reject the son's sacrifice. But there's only one unforgivable sin that people can commit, and that's to reject Jesus. If they reject Jesus, that is unforgivable and they will be cast into hell for rejecting Jesus. Not for the sins they did because Jesus took the penalty for sin. They will be cast in for rejecting the Son of God. And this is something that's very important for us to understand. Jesus, even in this statement, doesn't, doesn't blame them. He said, my friends did this. And there's no remunication on it. There's no anger on it. It goes... You know, this is what my friends did to me. Now, now, I'm not sure if he's talking about the Jews themselves in general or if he's talking about us as, as his bride because our sins did this to him. Our sins put those wounds in his body, put those wounds in his hands, put the wound in his side. Now, and it's a beautiful picture of what he did. He died for us. He was scourged for us. And, you know, I heard somebody talk about it, and I thought it was a beautiful picture. Eve was taken out of the side of Adam. The last thing that was done to Jesus was they, they, they put a spear up into his cavity by his heart and out poured water and blood. The church was taken out of his side as his bride because we were created through that sacrifice. 
so that we are very much, as, as he was the last Adam, Adam had his bride taken out of his side, he had his bride bought from what was taken out of his side. This is a beautiful picture that we're looking at. The picture of what Jesus has done for us. And we can't ever forget the cost of our salvation. That it's not anything we did, it's everything that he did. And if he wants to demand anything from us, we need to be ready to give it to him. Because it is going to be something that's going to be very serious. It is what sends people to hell, is rejecting Jesus. Point is that he was hurt by his, those that he can that he considered friends, and even if you don't want to take it to being the Jews, and you take it as the body of Christ, because of our sins he died, and he loves us, and we're his bride, and so we are still the ones that hurt him. Verse 7, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against, my, and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones, and it shall come to pass that... That in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts thereof shall be cut off and die, but the third part shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. They shall call upon my name and I will hear them and I will say, it is my people and they shall say, the Lord is my God. All right, at this point, we're, we're jumping back from the millennial kingdom to the tribulation period. Now, this is kind of an interesting thing, you, you know, you, as we bounce back and forth. It's not, it's not a linear uh, progression. Uh, we had Jesus speaking, and then it says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd and against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall scatter, and I will turn mine hand upon the little ones. During the tribulation period, basically all hell is going to break loose. But even throughout time, Satan has tried to destroy the church by destroying the leaders of the church, trying to destroy the leaders of the, the Jewish people to scatter, scatter people. This was done in the very first century when, when Rome attacked the, you know, the Jerusalem church, and all it did was scatter the Christians all over the place so that they would start preaching everywhere instead of Jerusalem. Uh, so... His plan has never worked, but yet that is the plan that is always done. In this particular one, we're looking at the tribulation period. At the beginning of the tribulation period, the church is raptured or taken out of, of the scene, and God turns back to the Jewish people, and Satan tries to destroy the Jewish people over that period of time. Starts by being their friend. You know, starts by saying, I, I, I am the Messiah, I, I'm, I'm doing good for you, and he, and he makes a peace treaty with them, with the whole world. And he lets them build their temple. And they think the Messiah has finally come until he stands up in the middle of the temple and says, I am God, worship me. And at that point, God supernaturally opens the eyes of the Jewish people and they recognize we've been lied to. How that happens, we don't know. It doesn't matter. But they're gonna, the majority of them are going to recognize we have been bamboozled, you know, we have been lied to, this is not the Messiah, and they will flee where God will protect them for the rest of the three and a half years, and this is this, you know, he's going to strike him, and then it, you know, very interesting, and this is kind of an interesting thing, and it says, it shall come to, to pass in the land, saith the Lord, two parts thereof shall be cut off and die, 
and one-third shall be left therein. Now, I don't know if anybody in this room has ever done it, which I have because I like numbers. I've gone through the book of Revelation, and I have taken all the places where it says a third will die here, a quarter will die here, and you know this, and I've, and I've, I've totaled all those numbers out, and you know what? 66% of the population will die during the, during the tribulation period. Just as it says, two-thirds will die and one-third will be left. All right? God says that it's so horrendous, you know, during the tribulation period that two out of three people will die. All of this is to try to get people's attention that God is still in charge. You know, and this is something, when God brings judgment on people, he's trying to get their attention. He wants repentance. Now this is, Revelation, the tribulation period, is a really bad <laughs> period of time. But God's purpose in it is still to try to get people's attention and saying, you've been ignoring me. I am God. Pay attention. Now the problem with this is usually the more hard times that get handled, handed to people, the more they blame God <laughs> rather than turn to him. But God has tried lovingly drawing people for many, many millennia. He's been trying to draw people by his love and he's finally going to get to the place where he says, fine, you won't come by my love. Let's see if you will respond to my discipline and my anger. And we know that most won't. But one third of the population of the world will remain by the end of the tribulation. That's a very small percentage. Still a lot of people. You know, because you figure, I can't remember what the population of the world is, you know, uh, something trillion, some, you know, certain trillion amount or something, or right out of trillion. You know, so it'd be about 300, 300 million or more, you know, a little more people still alive. So there's a lot of people left, but nothing compared to what it was as they entered in. And it says only one third will be left to be entered into the millennial kingdom for him to rule over. And it says, I will bring the third part through the fire and will refine them as silver is refined. You know, God loves to take his children through the fire to refine us. Even in this day for us, he takes his children and says, do you believe and are you going to stand for me? And he runs us through the fire. And his purpose is to refine us as silver or gold and get rid of all the dross and everything that's not good so that we can be made perfect. During the tribulation period, he's, he's going to say, you're following me, good. You didn't take the mark of the beast, good. You stayed true to me, good. And be able to draw them. Because do you realize how hard it will be to not turn away from, from God during that period of time? When you can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast, you're going to go very hungry. Especially in our day and age because they have modified the seeds so that even the fruit that is produced from the seeds does not, it cannot be planted anymore. So you can't grow your own food. You're not going to be able to find water. You're not going to be able to find food. The Revelation tells us that a loaf of bread will be cost the entire day's wage. 
So you work all day just to, buy, just to be able to buy a loaf of bread. In a world that has electricity and everything else needed, and all you can do is afford to buy enough food to live from working all day. And you know, we see all of this stuff being played out. You know, we see the electronic finances that can be turned off. There have been groups that have had their giving taken away from them because the banks have shut them down because they don't like what they teach and what they believe in. We're already seeing exactly how this one world government that you can't buy or sell without the mark of the beast happens. It, all the foundation is laid in place for it. And you know, it used to be we looked at all these things and said, oh, there's no way all that stuff could happen. Now we look at it and say, wow, we know exactly how all of this stuff can happen, which is one of the reasons we know we are close. Is it going to happen in our lifetime? I really think so, but it may not. But you know, we see how all this stuff can happen because it used to be nobody understood how you could have, you know, how are you going to stop people from spending money? You know, I got money in my hands. How are you going to stop me from spending it? Well, when you don't have money in your hand to spend, you're not going to be able to spend it. When nobody will take money, you're not going to be able to spend it. And I've had people go, well, it'll just become a barter system. Well, you have to have stuff to barter with. And it's not, you know, there will be some underground bartering, I know, but the general money and the general food is not going to be available to everybody. And we need to be able to see and understand this. And all these people, he goes, I'm going to bring you through the fire and try them as gold is tried. Heat it up and they remove the, all the drudge. They heat it up again and remove all the, all the, all the impurities. They heat it more and, and you know, they keep doing this until they get all of the impurities pulled out. But this is what we want to look at is that God says, I am going to do this. And then it says, and I love this. They shall call on my name and I will hear them. When people call on God, he hears them. Last night we were looking at the, the king, bad king, terrible king. He calls on God's name and God still heard him. Yeah, and turned out to be one of the greatest kings as far as kings go of the northern tribe. He's famous in history even for building their kingdom. And he kept taking people further and further away from God, and he called on God's help, and God helped him. Yeah. And he goes, God, why would you help somebody who doesn't believe in you? Yeah. And this is the strange thing, and this is the hard thing for us. You know, when, when God helps people, or seems to help people, that don't believe in him. We look at all these people who are bad and going, how are you being blessed? How are you doing, how are you doing all these things that are getting, getting, getting rewarded for? And all God's doing is giving them enough rope to hang themselves, basically, because they know that they're not happy. You know, they find that just as, as Solomon told us in Ecclesiastes, there's nothing that's going to make you happy. Everything is vanity. They get to the top of the company, they think they're, they, they're there and it doesn't make them happy. They get lots and lots of money and they're not happy. They get lots and lots of fame, they're not happy. You know, they get lots of friends, you know, so-called friends, and they're not happy. Because without God, they cannot truly be fulfilled. And God's saying, 
well, you think you want to do this without me? Let me give you, you know, I'll start letting you get, get all these what people think are blessings. But without me, you're not going to be fulfilled. And this is the beauty of it. God will help. And when we actually call on his name and repent, then we get to the last of this. And they will, I will hear them and say, it is my people. And they will say, the Lord is my God. Ultimately, that's where we need to get to. Call out on God's name so that he says, this is my people. And we call him God or Father or Lord whatever term you want to use to it for his recognition of who he is. Too many of us do not recognize him for who he is. Even Christians a lot of times forget. You know, he's our Lord and Savior, and then we'll forget. You know, uh, and I've done it myself. I've prayed sometimes and told God how we should answer a prayer. Now, the one thing I have learned is God has never taken my advice on anything. He has never called me to be his counselor and advisor. He doesn't need our help. And yet we in our humanity try to help him all the time. God, you know, I really need this. And I think this is the way you should do it, God. You know, you know that guy over there, they, they kind of like us a little bit. You know, and they've got lots and lots of money. Why don't you just give, have them put it on their heart to give it to us? Yeah. Uh, we think we can figure it all out. And God says, no, I've got another plan. He usually gives us the money anyway, but he gives it to us the way he wants to. Or whatever it is that we're asking for, he gives it the way he wants to give it to us. Because we need to recognize that he is God. He is sovereign. He is in charge. And we'll, we'll end this. I'm, I'm really early. I'll give you the, the statement I've given before. You know, people go to seminary and, it's, and the joke goes that they, learn two they only learn two things in seminary. There's only one God and I'm not him. <laughs> and you know what? If, if that is all you learn from seminary, if that's all you ever learn and you really learn it, that is worth everything anyway. To realize that there's only one God and you're not him is a big understanding. It's kind of a joke, but it is really a true statement. If I understand that there's only one God and he gets to do what he wants to do, and I'm his servant to do what he tells me to do, life gets a whole lot easier and a lot better. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. and Lord, just your faithfulness that you will be able to endure you predicted the future and we can see it coming and we ask you to give us guidance and, and as we learn to love and truly follow you in jesus name amen listening friends do you know god not just know about him today is the day to decide to become his child god loves you and jesus came to die for your sins in romans 3:23, we are told for all have sinned and come short of the glory of god we all have sinned god says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. 
I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.